Hear the word of the Lord. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Bobby, I'm one of the pastors here. Here at Sojourn, we try to help people take their next step with Christ, reaching them with the gospel, building them up as God's church, and then sending them to the world to be champions of truth, beauty, and goodness. This is a life of purpose and meaning, and that is what our current sermon series is all about. We call it His Story, Finding the More You Were Made For, and now we're on week three, and this week is all about developing endurance. We all have a vision for ourselves, for our our families, our relationships, our, our job, Some of you uh, have written it down. Some of you have multiple uh, kind of micro visions. You've written down exactly how you want things to go in your family. You've got a budget in place for your finances. You've written out goals for your work. Most of you maybe have not written these things down, but you still have some idea in your mind how you would like your relationships to go, how you would like your career to go, where you hope to live someday, what you hope to see, do, and accomplish. Unfortunately, we fall short time and time again. We break our budget and get into debt. We stay trapped in dead-end jobs. We take our loved ones for granted. We can't stay on a diet. Jesus resisted all the powers of Satan. I can't say no to french fries. Spouses refuse to work through the tough patches in their marriage because they think if it's true love, it should be effortless. Businesses emphasize short-term profits over long-term growth. We do this in every single area of our lives. And we tell ourselves, maybe some of these are just small or temporary decisions, but how you do anything is how you do everything. It's your habit. Today's story will help us develop the endurance we need to turn a new and better page. It pits the Son of God against the Lord of darkness. And if you're a Christian, this is vital because all of your visions for yourself fit under this umbrella of God's vision to fill the earth with his glory as men and women become their true selves in Christ and then share his glory with others. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, first, thank you for coming. I understand if you would think, now, wait a minute. I can maybe buy into a really big villain like Goliath or a a sneaky one like uh, Judas, but Satan, come on. You expect me to believe this? So I'll make a deal with you. If you consider all the supernatural stuff in today's story to be a myth or a metaphor, you'll still end up with a takeaway, one simple, memorable, easy takeaway. 
that will help you develop endurance and stay focused in whatever area of life that you would like to succeed in until you die. And maybe if you find Jesus helpful here, you'll keep coming back and considering his words and actions. And if you decide, like I have and like countless others have, that Jesus is Lord, then your visions for yourself, your family, your career, don't become less important. They may change somewhat, but they don't become less important. They become more important because they fit inside of a story and a vision that's bigger than you can imagine. As Pastor Jonas said last week, only the kingdom of God is a mission and a purpose that is big enough to sustain us. So let's dive in the gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Now this word then uh, follows immediately on what we learned last week, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus was on top of the world with an amazing affirmation from God the Father. And what happens to you uh, usually when you're on top of the world one minute? Nowhere to go but down. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where the devil does the tempting. The Spirit leads us not only into good things but into confrontations with bad things. That goes with leading a life of purpose and meaning. Where there's no test, there's no conquest. Now, about this word, devil. Uh, Matthew originally wrote his biography of Jesus in Greek, and this word in Greek is diabolos. It's where we get the English word diabolical. Now, I've been a, a proud resident of New Albany, Indiana, for the past decade, but I was born and raised in Jeffersonville. Jeff High, class of 90, still have the class ring. We are the Jeff Red Devils. <laughs> Boo, yes. How do you know you're in New Albany, Indiana? Talk about Satan, nothing. Talk about Jeff High, boo. <laughs> All right, so this mascot, this is not the devil. This is a cartoon. The, the horns, the color red, the cloven feet, the pitchfork, all that stuff, just fiction. So what, what did Satan look like? Was he big and ferocious or was he the tiny guy that's sitting on Jesus' shoulder and just whispering into his ear? Was he simply uh, an, an immaterial presence that Jesus could sense and it made the hair on his, his arms stand on end? All I know is that the New Testament portrays Satan as the chief anti-God force who works to split people off from the good life with God. The verb form of this Greek word diabolos literally means to split. He is the splitter. Sounds like a Marvel supervillain, right? The splitter. God created you for something more, to live a meaningful, purpose-filled life, and Satan is this force that wants to split you off from that. So today's story presents God-man versus the splitter. And normally we know the splitter would be uh, no contest for God-man. He could just zap him like that. But the twist today is that God-man is not going to use his superpowers. And we'll learn why in just a minute. So this would be like if Peter Parker is taking on Dr. Octopus, but he's not going to use any of his spider powers. So, verse 2. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted and he became very hungry. Sometimes 40 minutes without food is tough for me. 
He must be famished. Jesus comes out of the waters of the Jordan, goes into the desert for 40 days, and endures temptations. The first readers of the Gospel of Matthew would have thought of how ancient Israel in the Old Testament came up out of the Red Sea, spent 40 years in the desert wilderness, and endured temptation. And in actually every time Jesus speaks in today's story, he's quoting scripture from that ancient Old Testament story. Israel failed their temptation in the wilderness. Well, Jesus, next verse. During that time, the devil, Diabolos, the splitter, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now this phrase, if you are, could be translated since you are. The idea is not that Jesus might somehow forget who he is, but that he might use his divinity in a self-serving way for his own comfort. Jesus is not going to use his superpowers here, either to resist temptation or to gratify himself with immediate comfort. These are real temptations coming upon a real human. Later on in the New Testament, there's a letter written to Jewish Christians called Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter four, it says that Christ was tempted in every way that we are tempted. He wants to defeat Satan for us and show us how to resist evil in our daily lives. And that wouldn't work if he uses superpowers that we don't have. So, in his humanity, Jesus has a decision to make. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, he doesn't say people do not live by bread at all. Later on in Matthew, Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. He'll do miracles with bread. He'll eat bread with his friends. Jesus is not anti-bread, but he knows that our deepest need is for a relationship with our Heavenly Father who will give us everything we need when we need it. So, he passes the first test by quoting Scripture. But why? He was hungry. Why not just do the miracle and eat the bread? Is it so wrong to be comfortable? How does this help you develop endurance that you'll need? Maybe we'll learn the answer in the second test. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. This is about 300 feet above the Kidron Valley. And this second temptation is full of holy things. Holy city, holy temple, and Satan is about to quote Holy Scripture. If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. The splitter distorts Psalm 91. That's what he's quoting here. In this temptation, Jesus experiences one of the most surprising sources of evil in the world, the perversion of scripture. You, you take a verse here, and there, out of context, and you make the Bible seem to say anything you want. In particular, this is a temptation to be reckless with God's promises. Jesus is tempted to prove a faith in Scripture that he has just claimed. Satan's saying, put your money where your mouth is. You believe the Bible, do you? Then step out in faith. Again, Jesus has a decision to make. 
Verse 7, Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Now when he says this, he's, he's not referring to himself. He's not saying, nobody talks to me that way. He's saying, I'm not going to do anything to dishonor my father. Jesus knows that Psalm 91 is all about God's protecting love. It's not about believers treating God as a genie in a bottle that can be summoned with just the right word, a prisoner to our demands and our reckless leaps. So often we're tempted to demand that God prove himself in some radical way, when most often he supplies the help we need through his word and through relationships with his people. So, Jesus passes this second test by quoting scripture. Refusing to be reckless with scripture and force God into some radical display of his power. But again, why? He could have easily done this miracle. What does anything here have to do with developing endurance? Maybe we'll learn in the third test. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. The third temptation is the most powerful of all, the temptation to take shortcuts to accomplish good work, like a get-rich-quick scheme. Jesus' work as Messiah is to win the world. Mission accomplished if he will just take a knee. Is the splitter lying? Satan is the father of lies. Jesus calls him that in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8. And in the final analysis, all authority belongs to God. But this is a real temptation for Jesus, not just some joke where Jesus knows that Satan couldn't possibly make good on anything he's promising. The splitter does have some kind of authority. Again, in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself describes Satan as the ruler of this world. And Satan isn't asking Jesus to spend his whole life worshiping at his feet. He's not suggesting a permanent switch in allegiance. Hey, Jesus, let's you and me join forces and we'll take the Father down. The, the verb tense in the original Greek here is, is suggesting one act, one bow, one act of worship, not a lifetime, not an ongoing one. This is a bargain, and the promise is the whole world. Satan is saying, I'll honor you if you honor me. Let's call a truce. Just take a knee one time, and then I'll give up. You want the world, you can have it. You don't have to fight me for it. All those scriptures about you, Jesus, and Isaiah, lamb led to the slaughter. I'll slaughter you if I have to, but let's just call a truce here, and I'll walk away. You can have everything you've set out to accomplish without the struggle, the suffering, the heartache. We are often tempted to think that if our work or if our cause succeeds, then that's all that matters by any means necessary. I'll vote for this morally corrupt candidate because he'll pass some good laws. I'll disregard my employee's sexual harassment claim because she's accused my top salesman. He brings in so much money. 
Students, have you ever said, I'll skip reading that big book when I go to do my essay. I'll just watch the movie or I'll read some Amazon reviews. I'll kind of riff off of those. We start young and small. How many of your little ones clean their room by stuffing everything under the bed or in the closet? We do this time and again, and it becomes our habit, and we keep doing it as we get older with greater and greater consequence. We're so tempted to take the easy way out. Even when we try to develop good habits or refrain from bad habits, we expect that it will be easy. The psychologist Carol Dweck has studied this extensively, and she writes, Change isn't like surgery. Even when you change, the old beliefs aren't just removed like a worn-out hip or knee and replaced with better ones. Instead, the new beliefs take their place alongside the old ones, and as they become stronger, they give you a different way to think, feel, and act. New beliefs only become stronger as you make decisions based on them day after day after day. So, for the third time, Jesus has a decision to make. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus' love for the world does not justify by any means necessary. He says, I'm on mission with my dad. I'm not going to break my father's heart for the splitter's promises. And I'm not going to lose sight of my goal. Verse 11 Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. This phrase, took care of Jesus, literally uh, in the original language means uh, and waited on his table. So both the angelic help uh, and the food which Jesus had resisted when they involved sin are now given to him as a victor. In all three temptations, Jesus gets his victory by using the common source available to all of us. Again, he could have just zapped Satan, but he didn't use his superpowers. He did what any of us could do because he was showing us the way. He quoted scripture. Read it, quote it, pray it, know it. If you have trouble getting into the Bible, if you tried to read it and, and you just can't make sense of it or you just don't see how it, how it applies to you, about a year ago, Pastor Jonah wrote uh, something we call a field guide. It's called Taste, How to Encounter God in the Bible. It's an easy read, maybe 10 minutes, and it'll really help you in your Bible study. We always have free copies of this in the lobby at our How We Grow Wall. We printed out some extra this week, and it is on the welcome table, so I'd invite you to pick it up on your way home. Taste, How to Encounter God in the Bible. Jesus got his victory here by quoting scripture. But again, why? We know how he defeats the splitter, by using God's word. But where does he get the stick to itness? It's like if I ask you why you ate pork fried rice and you say with chopsticks. Well, yes, I know you use chopsticks, but why did you eat pork fried rice? Jesus made a conscious decision every day to set his face like a stone, determined to do God's will. That's a quote from Isaiah 50. Why? How is he so focused? Jesus is future-minded. He has a vision for his life that includes where he's going and how he's going to get there. When he set his face like a stone each day, he was making a conscious choice to play this vision in his mind and then do things that would carry him there. 
Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. His vision involved bringing justice to the splitter who had separated people from God the Father, reuniting those people with the Father in a never-ending kingdom and then ruling alongside his Father in this good kingdom. More succinctly, his vision was to give the Father glory. All three temptations were about more than they appear. It was never about bread. It was about Satan's attempt to cause division, to split father and son and rob God of his glory. Every time Jesus was faced with a decision, he could ask himself, does this decision support my vision? Now, how would this play out if the subject wasn't God and the vision didn't involve saving the universe? In the late 1990s, a professor at the University of New South Wales named Gary McPherson investigated why some children show exceptional aptitude at music. He led a nine-month study of 133 school children of around eight years of age who were about to start an instrument at school. Why did some excel? He tested all kinds of variables, home life, IQ, grades, family income. He could find no correlation, not even their sense of rhythm. One thing made the difference. At the beginning of the study, he asked each child, how long do you expect to play your instrument? And he, he put their responses into three categories. The first was short-term. They're basically taking uh, the music to get out of PE or art class. Then there's the medium term, and they said, well, I'll probably until I grow up and life gets busy. The third group was long-term. They said, what do you mean? Always. I, I'm a musician now. I play clarinet or trumpet. I'll always be able to do this. The long-term kids scored 400% higher on the music aptitude test than short-term kids and more than double the medium-term kids. They had a vision for themselves as musicians. And that vision was so compelling that they made daily decisions in line with that vision, and it paid off, even for those from broken families, even for those with low IQs or who had little natural sense of rhythm. So, Tomorrow, I have a challenge for you, the Monday challenge, something that I want you to think about and also talk about with your spouse, with your friend, with your community group. I want you to work through this question. Do your decisions support your vision? And sometimes it gets easy to get lost in the weeds when we're talking about uh, your overall vision in life, the big vision to be about the kingdom of God. So, so get, get real here and pick one of these five categories. Pick, pick the one that you're really struggling with. Maybe you're really struggling at, at work, or maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your parenting. Pick one of these. Family, friendship, vocation, money, entertainment, and sit down and talk about it with people that you give permission to get real with you and talk about these things with you. And the decisions you're making, do these decisions, do your decisions regarding money reflect your vision for how you want to put money to work 
for the kingdom of God, for providing for, for raising your family. Now, there's two caveats here. The first is, if any of your individual or what I would call your micro visions, your everyday visions for these different areas of your life, uh, if they don't fit under God's vision, then sooner or later you will come to the end of it and you'll still be dissatisfied. Sometimes the, the worst thing you can do is accomplish a goal or fulfill a vision for yourself and then you think, what next? It didn't bring me what I thought it would. Again, only the kingdom of God is a mission and a purpose and a vision big enough to sustain us. So keep that in mind as you're working through these categories. The second is, I keep saying, work through them with someone else, with your community group, with your spouse, with your best friend. If you don't, if you just ask this question of yourself, which is a good question to ask it of yourself, but when you're faced with temptation, sometimes it won't be enough because we are not uh, completely rational creatures. There is is a famous economist named Richard Thaler. And economists tend to be very rational people who expect that everyone will always behave rationally in line with their own self-interest. But one night, Richard is throwing a party, and he's inviting all of his economist friends, his academic friends, some of the smartest people in the world, the most rational people in the world are coming to this party. And he's catered this fine meal. It's going to be a wonderful meal. The meal is still being prepared, and he's set out cashews. And uh, people, as they're just mingling, they start eating these cashews, and they keep eating, and they keep eating. And, and Richard starts to worry, man, I've spent all this money catering this meal, and they're all going to be stuffed. They're, they don't even look like they're enjoying themselves. They just can't stop popping the cashews. Do you know what, the, have you been to Texas Roadhouse? The, the peanuts, the, uh, the free bread? Or do you go somewhere that has free chips and salsa, and you're thinking like, Man, I ordered the the fajitas and they're going to be great, but I can't stop eating the chips. So Richard finally asked his guests, would you like me to take the cashews away? And they were like, yes, please. They were powerless. They were making a decision that did not support their vision of a fine meal, but they were powerless. They needed a buddy to say, hey, can can I take these chips away? You need a buddy. You need friends. One of the greatest gifts God gave us is the gift of each other. You need people that you've given permission to get up in your grill and say like, hey, are these decisions you're making, do these support our vision as Christians to bring God glory? Does your decision, you keep going out to lunch every day, and I remember you told me that you were going to stop going out to lunch because you wanted to save up money to take your family to Disney World. Does does these decisions to go to Taco Bell every day, is this supporting that vision you told me about? We need friends to hold us accountable in that way. Next week, we continue his story, Finding the More We Were Made For, by learning what it means to live with purpose and meaning if you're just small time or stuck on the margins of society. But it starts with a vision. Jesus had one so compelling that he could take a piece of bread like this one, on the night that he was betrayed. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine, like this one, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. His vision got him through that dark night 
and the torture that was to come. Years after he'd risen and ascended to heaven, he shared that vision with his friend John, who wrote it down. I'll read you what John wrote. You can read along with me or close your eyes and let the scene play out in your mind. I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Did you catch that? Let's go back just a second. He who was hungry and thirsty and scorched by the heat of the sun in the desert wilderness. He who was a lamb led to the slaughter, did all of that so you wouldn't have to, but instead would be given living water, eternal life, and God would wipe every tear from your eyes. He invites us to share this vision and reap this reward. If you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you don't come forward and partake of communion because it symbolizes something you haven't accepted yet. Instead, make a decision to support this vision. Accept Christ as Savior and King, and then we can prepare you in the weeks to come to be baptized and partake of communion with us. After I pray, Christians in the front half of the room will come forward tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it into wine or juice as your conscience permits. The cups with wine will have strings of twine tied around them. If you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them over here, my left to your right. And if you're in the back half of the room, we'll have communion stations in the back half right in front of the sound booth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to this world, this world that we had corrupted, Thank you for sending him into the midst of relationships that we had corrupted. Thank you for giving him to us so that we could learn how to live, so that we could see how to resist evil in our lives. Thank you for giving him to die for our sins, to do what we could never do, to resist in a way that we could never resist, to, to win a permanent, lasting freedom for us all so we could enter in to your gates and live forever as sons and daughters in your kingdom, inheriting all of your riches at Christ's expense. Help us to remember this as we come forward and partake of communion now. And I pray for anyone in this room who is outside of this kingdom, who is outside of this family, that you'll keep inviting them and wooing them and asking them to come in. In Christ's name, amen.